2: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style
1: a cowboy's crusade to even the score
3: he's gonna hunt these people down he's not gonna stand for this
2: a daredevil pilot soars into disaster he needs to get to land he needs to get to land now and a funeral fanatic's murderous ways. Some of the superstitious
1: began to say, maybe this is the devil's work. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Washington, D.C., Featuring over a hundred museums, memorials, and monuments, the nation's capital draws almost 19 million visitors per year. And within this cultural mecca is one of the city's top attractions, the International Spy Museum. The only public institution devoted to the undercover arts, its collection features such clandestine marvels as a lipstick pistol, a camera concealed in a coat button, and a U.S. Army cipher machine. But amongst these covert gadgets is a much more conspicuous weapon. It is about five inches long, about four inches high, and has a shortened barrel, the better to draw the weapon quickly if necessary. According to curator Dr. Vince Houghton, this revolver played an integral role in a high-stakes game of espionage. It was once featured in a life or death situation that had real recriminations for global diplomacy. Who wielded this gun? And how did his actions help spur on one of the most terrifying periods in world history? It's 1943 in Canada. Russian citizen Igor Gozenko is a likable 26-year-old working at the new Soviet embassy in Ottawa. In the Second World War, the United States, the Canadians and the British have been alliance. ...with the Soviet Union, And so Guzenko was sent to Canada as a diplomat. Together with his wife and son, the Russian seems to embody this era of international trust. But he's concealing a dark truth. He was secretly working as a spy. Guzenko is part of a widespread Soviet espionage ring... ...charged with stealing details of the Western world's newest superweapon, the atomic bomb... His job is to encipher and decipher messages from the Soviet Union to the Canadian Embassy in Ottawa. For months, Gozenko dutifully deceives in service to his homeland. But as he spends more time in Canada, he becomes enamored with its freedoms and grows wary of returning to life under Stalin's iron fist. For many people, life was a horrible, horrible experience under the Stalinist regime. And if you said anything contrary to the party, then you could be executed. One night, the disillusioned spy confides his feelings to his wife. She shares the sentiment that he does. The West was a place with much more hope and future for their young family. Soon after, Gazenko is busy deciphering codes coming in from Moscow, when a message addressed to a superior catches his eye. Gazenko realized that it was the order recalling him back to the Soviet Union. The Russian gets a sinking suspicion. He thought perhaps that the Soviets had bugged his house and overheard conversation that he had with his wife. And they suspected him of being a traitor. And so a life back in the Soviet Union would be very short. Desperate to save himself and his family, Gazenko resolves to defect. But he knows he must give the Canadian government a reason to take them in. He ransacks every possible top-secret document he can that detail this massive espionage effort that the Soviet Union is perpetrating against the Western world. Then he brings the documents to Canadian authorities. But he's aghast at their response. They think he is crazy because the Canadians are allies with the Soviet Union. There's no reason to believe that there is a Russian espionage effort against Canada. They turn a devastated Gazenko away without examining his proof. Gazenko is terrified because he knows now that it's been enough time for the Soviet embassy to realize that many of their most top-secret documents have walked out the door with Hugo Gazenko. Convinced his handlers will soon come to kill him, the defector determines his family is unsafe at home. So he takes them to a neighbor's apartment across the hall. There, he anxiously waits by the door with a gun. The very same one on display at the International Spy Museum. At midnight, Gozenko hears a commotion in the hallway and realizes his worst fears have come true. He looked through the keyhole and saw four Soviet embassy officials break into and ransack his apartment. Gozenko was terrified. The gun is the only thing standing between his family and certain death. But then... An alarmed neighbor hears the commotion and summons the police. When they arrive, the intruders are forced to depart. And finally, Guzenko breathes a sigh of relief. Following the harrowing incident, intelligence officials are ready to listen at last.
2: What this does is that it demonstrates to the Canadian authorities that Guzenko is somebody they need to take seriously. He's relieved. Guzenko is finally able to tell his story
1: and is finally safe When the defector turns over his intel, authorities are stunned. They had no idea that this many people within Canada, Britain, and the United States were working for the Soviet intelligence agencies. More than a dozen agents are arrested, spurring international outrage. The Allies' wartime friendship with the Soviet Union falls apart, and the incident serves as a catalyst for another epic conflict. For many, the Guzenko affair is the beginning of the Cold War. Today, this gun on display at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. serves as a reminder of a brave defector who awakened North Americans to the magnitude and danger of Soviet espionage. Seattle, Washington. From 1916 to 2001, this metropolis was the headquarters of famed aviation company, Boeing. Preserving this high flying history is the largest private air and space museum in the world, the Museum of Flight. The winged wonders in these massive halls include the world's first fighter plane, a 1963 Blackbird, and a drone used in a 2009 rescue mission. But amongst these examples of military might is a craft that appears
2: much more primitive. The wingspan of the aircraft is about 41 feet. It could attain an airspeed of between 85 and 125 miles per hour. But according to curator Dan Hagedorn,
1: this bare-bones Curtis Robin tells the incredible tale
2: of a hair-raising stunt. This is the story about an average American young man who achieves something really quite spectacular. Who once flew a Curtis Robin plane on a perilous, record-breaking
1: adventure? 1927. San Diego, California. 20-year-old Douglas Corrigan is a charming novice pilot, a mechanic for famed aviator Charles Lindbergh. He dreams of following in the record-breaker's footsteps. He was smitten by the idea of being an American hero. So the adventurous Irish-American concocts
2: a lofty plan of his own. His goal was to be the first person to fly nonstop from the United States to the capital of his homeland. Dublin, Ireland. The mechanic begins by purchasing the only plane he can afford,
1: a battered and worn Curtis Robin, the same model today on display at the Museum of Flight. But Corrigan knows that to fly overseas, the rickety craft must first pass a rigorous safety inspection conducted by the Civil Aeronautics Authority. For years, he labors tirelessly, attempting to bring the plane up to snuff. He was sinking everything he had into that aircraft. In 1936, Corrigan submits his plane for inspection. But the safety examiner determines that the dilapidated craft is not sound enough to fly nonstop over the ocean. So he only approves
2: Corrigan for a cross-country flight. Basically, they said that we just don't want to authorize suicide. The aviator is deflated.
1: But he decides to put his renovated plane to the test by flying from California to New York. In 1938, he takes to the skies. And incredibly, the patchwork plane completes the journey without a hitch. In New York, convinced he will now be allowed to fulfill his record-breaking dream, Corrigan reapplies for permission to fly across the Atlantic.
2: They did not authorize that. These inspectors would not cut him a break. Instead, they will only allow Corrigan to make
1: the return flight back to California. But the aviator isn't willing to give up on his dream. So he concocts a daring plan to make it a reality. July 17th, Brooklyn. Just after 5 a.m., Corrigan takes off from Floyd Bennett Field, heading west to California. California. But seconds later, he does something that
2: shocks airport staff. He did a 180 and headed east to Ireland and into history. The
1: mischievous aviator knows he's risking arrest and his own safety, but he puts his trust in the plane and successfully navigates toward the Atlantic. Then 10 hours later, midway over the ocean, Corrigan feels an odd
2: sensation. His feet are soaking wet. His feet were actually immersed in fuel that had leaked out of one of the tanks. A terrified Corrigan realizes he may run out of fuel. Or worse, if the errant gas reaches the hot engine, the whole plane will explode. He needs to get to land. He needs to get to land now. Will the defiant pilot survive the flight? Or
1: will his attempt to make history crash and burn?
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.
3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
1: It's July 1938. In defiance of aviation inspectors, pilot Douglas Corrigan has taken to the skies in an attempt to become the first man to fly from New York to Dublin. But midway over the Atlantic, the gas tank of his run-down aircraft is dangerously leaking fuel. Will the daredevil pilot survive? Corrigan
2: acts quickly to keep the fuel from reaching the hot engine. He used a jackknife that he carried in his pocket to cut a small opening under the surface of where the fuel was accumulating so that it could exit the aircraft. But Corrigan is unsure if
1: he has sufficient gas to reach Dublin, and he can't find the leak's source to
2: stem the flow. It's a race between time, distance, and dwindling fuel.
1: Hour after excruciating hour passes as the fuel tanks approach empty. Then, incredibly, Corrigan spots the Irish coast. Relieved, the aviator navigates his way to Dublin's Baldonnell Airport, and finally, after 3,175 miles, the plane touches down. He had done what he set out to do. Determined to avoid prosecution, the charming pilot feigns
2: confusion. He said, where am I? He claimed that he, in fact, had intended to go to California. His story was he went the wrong way. But many see through this
1: flimsy cover, and the media on both sides of the Atlantic instantly latch on to the mischievous tale from that day forward, he was Douglas Wrongway Corrigan. When he returns home, the self-made aviator is embraced as a hero of the everyman. He was a genuine American success story. Today, this Curtis Robin on display at the Museum of Flight stands as a tribute to an adventurous aviator who deceptively soared to new heights. In 1788, the city of Marietta was established as the first permanent settlement in what would later become Ohio. Today, it's dotted with buildings and homes that evoke colonial beauty and charm. But set amongst this picturesque backdrop is a rather macabre establishment the People's Mortuary Museum. Here, caskets with cushioned interiors, shoes worn by the deceased, and an antique pump organ illustrate the elaborate history of the funeral arts. But at the museum center is an object that truly showcases the pageantry of internment. It's got a plush interior, running boards along the side, and looks like a gangster car. According to writer Mark Sebastian Jordan, this lavish coach speaks to one of the most confounding crimes in Ohio history. This hearse would be, to most people, a symbol of death. But to one individual, it was a dream come true. What unexpected role did this stately model play in a twisted tale of murder? January 1st, 1925, Hard Scrabble, Ohio. As night descends on this small rural community, the peace of its residents is abruptly shattered. Anguished cries are heard coming from the home of a farmer named Fred Ginkie. Concerned citizens rush in and find Fred, his wife Lily, and their six children writhing in pain. The entire family is literally fallen on the floor, suffering from convulsions. The neighbors summon a relative of Fred's for help, a nurse named Martha Wise. Martha Wise was a widow with four of children. She had found a little niche after her husband passed away in helping tend to sick people. After examining the family, Wise tells Fred she's unsure of what plagues them. She stays with her relatives to nurse them through the mysterious illness. But three days later, just when it seems the family's health has improved, Fred's wife, Lily, passes away.
2: Fred is completely distraught. So he asks Martha to make the funeral arrangements.
1: Wise graciously agrees and prepares an extravagant send-off. Funerals in those days were very glamorous affairs. More would be spent on people at their funeral than had been spent on them in their entire lives. And at the end of such a flashy event, the body is transported to the cemetery in an ornate hearse, like the one on display at the People's Mortuary Museum. After his wife's funeral, Fred Ginky looks to put this inexplicable tragedy behind him. But just two weeks later, the unknown illness strikes again, sending Fred and two of his children to the hospital. And then the death knell rings once more. This time, Fred passes away. Soon, more than a dozen people in this small community are suffering from the strange malady. Rumors began
2: to fly. Some of the superstitious began to say, maybe this is the devil's work. But the sheriff and his deputies had an idea that if there was a devil at work,
1: it was a very human one. They discover that all of the victims share a common thread. All of these illnesses were happening within two families related by marriage. So they order blood tests on the surviving members of the Ginky family. And when the results come in, their suspicions are confirmed. The results showed a precipitation of metallic arsenic. They had been intentionally poisoned. This horrifying news sends shockwaves throughout the area. The people of Hardscrabble were traumatized that there's some sort of serial poisoner at work in their community. Soon, investigators hone in on a curious detail. Within the Ginke family, Only a select few show no signs of illness. The children of Martha Wise. Detectives question Wise's sons, and one of them reveals something alarming. The boy said that when they went to the family gathering for the holidays, Martha had told her children to not drink the water. Authorities arrest Martha Wise. And after hours of interrogation, the widow breaks down. She admits she was the one who poisoned them all. But why would a nurse want to take out her own family? Under further questioning, Wise reveals a motive so disturbing it's almost incomprehensible. Two years earlier, when her husband unexpectedly passed away, the people of Hardscrabble rallied behind her. The community felt sorry for her, and she became the center of attention. Wise basked in her newfound celebrity. But more than anything, she felt the lavish funeral was exhilarating. Widow Wise was in her element, making all the arrangements, getting the music, the people ready, the feast. And at the funeral itself, seeing the big shiny black hearse taking a body to the cemetery was her source of joy. But her bliss ended as soon as her husband was buried, desperate to feel such euphoria again. She cooked up a poisonous plot. In her twisted mind, she decided that Hard Scrabble needed to have a few more funerals. Her maniacal scheme victimized 17 members of her own family, leaving three dead and four paralyzed. On May 4th, she's put on trial and sentenced to life in prison. And today, at the People's Mortuary Museum, this 1920s hearse stands as a sobering reminder of a woman whose twisted search for joy wreaked deadly consequences. Plainview, Texas is one of the state's bastions of ranching culture. And perhaps nowhere is this heritage better preserved than at the Llano Estacado Museum. Here, everything from antique saddles to windmill-driven water pumps— document the determination of the settlers who tamed this desolate land. But one set of objects tells a different tale of cowboy grit.
3: These artifacts are slightly larger than a postcard showing sinister-looking men and their physical descriptions.
1: According to Beverly Norfleet Sutterfield, these mugshots were at the center of a tale so nefarious that it has resonated through her family for generations.
3: These cards represent a link between a notorious crime ring and an unlikely hero.
1: So who are these menacing characters? And how do they set off one man's epic crusade for personal justice? 1919, Hale County, Texas. 54-year-old James Frank Norfleet is a no-nonsense cowboy working hard to expand his burgeoning ranch.
3: Norfleet already had some land. But he wanted to buy a larger plot for his family.
1: So one day in November, the rancher travels to Dallas, hoping to sell some cattle to raise funds for the new parcel. Once in town, he checks into the Adolphus Hotel and relaxes in the lounge. But after a few minutes, Norfleet feels something odd digging into his leg. There was a wallet. He opens the pocketbook and finds $240 in cash, and a card identifying the owner.
3: He noticed it belonged to a Mr. Stetson.
1: After inquiring at the front desk, Norfleet tracks Mr. Stetson down to a room in the hotel. Overjoyed to have his money back, the stranger insists on rewarding the honest cowboy. He tells Norfleet that he is a wealthy stockbroker and offers to use his business acumen to show his gratitude.
3: Stetson said, I'll invest the $100 in the stock market for you. And if it earns anything, I'll split the money with you.
1: Eager to expand his ranch, Norfleet accepts the proposal. The cowboy waits in the room while Stetson goes to the local exchange to place the wager. Later, he saunters in announcing their astonishing success.
3: The outcome of this investment was $68,000. Norfleet was overwhelmed.
1: But as the men celebrate their good fortune, there's a knock at the door.
3: And happens to be the secretary of the stock exchange.
1: And he has some bad news. The man explains that Stetson has made a bet in Norfleet's name. But because Norfleet is not an official member of the stock exchange, the winnings are null and void.
3: Norfleet is confused at this point. He is unfamiliar with the stock market and how it works.
1: Then the visitor offers a solution. If together the men can put forth a security bond equivalent to their earnings, it will prove they are credit worthy. And both the bond and the $68,000 will be released back to them. Unwilling to let the opportunity slip through his fingers, Norfleet vows to somehow scrape together some cash. So the rancher heads back home, and with no other options, He assumes large debts to raise the funds. Days later, Norfleet returns to the Dallas area and hands Stetson thousands in cash.
3: Stetson says, I'll take the money and go smooth it over with exchange.
1: Norfleet waits for the broker to retrieve their winnings. But after several hours, he's left with an aching suspicion.
3: Stetson's not going to return.
1: Norfleet starts piecing together the incredulous events of the last few days, starting with a wallet that mysteriously appeared in his pocket. And it dawns on him. Stetson and the secretary were working together.
3: All of it has been a con.
1: Norfleet realizes that he and his family have been taken for all they're worth. But the outraged cowboy refuses to hang his head in shame. Instead, he makes a solemn vow... To exact justice on his own terms,
3: he's going to hunt these people down. He's not going to stand for this.
1: Looking for clues into the true identities of the fraudster and his team, Norfleet heads to the police station and leafs through their gallery of mugshots. Soon, he recognizes the man who conned him within these photos. Today, on display at the Yano Estacado Museum, Norfleet learns that Mister Stetson's real name is Joe Fury, ringleader of a gang of grifters infamous for their large-scale financial frauds. Then, for help in locating the swindlers, Norfleet goes to the newspapers and appeals to readers. Then, one day, Norfleet is contacted by an employee of a telegraph company who tells him that Joe Fury has recently wired money from a location in Jacksonville, Florida. A thrilled Norfleet sets off in hot pursuit of his nemesis. In Jacksonville, the vengeful cowboy searches all of the city's finest lodges, and at the Mason Hotel, he finally spots his mark.
3: He happens to see a familiar face. It's Stetson.
1: Their eyes lock, and Norfleet aims his gun straight at the swindler. As guests around them flee in terror, Fury tries to make a getaway.
3: But Norfleet grabs him by the lapel and will not let go. And he drags him all the way back to Texas to justice.
1: In Fort Worth, Fury is convicted of swindling. And by 1924, the other members of his gang are also arrested. In the end, Norfleet never gets his money back. But he basks in something far sweeter, justice.
3: He has not only nabbed the man that has swindled him, but has swindled... Hundreds.
1: Today, these mugshots remain in the archives of the Llano Estacado Museum, a reminder of a group of conmen who crossed the wrong cowboy. An early airplane prototype made by the Wright brothers, a 19th-century automaton, and the world's first capacitor battery. These are just a few of the scientific wonders displayed at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But there's one small wooden novelty in this venerable collection that seems to outshine them all.
4: It is 19 inches wide and 20 inches tall. It's got four pillars and
1: two wheels. According to curatorial coordinator Susanna Carroll, the way this machine's wheels are propelled seems to defy explanation.
4: There's no visible source of power, but it rotates, it moves.
1: What is this mysterious device? And what role did it play in one of the nation's most notorious scientific scandals? It's 1812 in Philadelphia. Tradesman Charles Redheffer has just completed work on an invention that he claims will transform America. So, in the summer, he opens an exhibit to the public, charging visitors $1 to marvel at his groundbreaking device. Comprised of a weighted pendulum driving two interlocking gears... Red Heifer asserts that the spinning contraption is connected to no external power. Instead, it generates its own constant source of energy. He calls it a perpetual motion machine. The technology's promise is an astonishing one, to keep the country's factories running without the aid of costly natural resources. And as word spreads... Red Heifer’s miraculous instrument becomes a sensation.
4: People were coming from all different cities. They were so excited to see this machine because it would revolutionize the industry of America.
1: Eager to capitalize on the success of his exposition, Red Heifer lobbies the state legislature to invest in his innovative contraption. But first, officials want to see how the mysterious device works.
4: They realize they don't have any hard facts about Charles Redheffer's machine.
1: So, on January 21, 1813, an esteemed group of engineers arrive to inspect Redheffer's creation. The inventor allows them to view the machine from a short distance. And to their astonishment, the device seems to function just as Redheffer asserts. But then, one of the men notices something odd. Redheffer claims that the machine's large gear is driving the smaller one, which then transmits energy through an axis to power an external device. As a result, friction should wear down the front side of the large gear's teeth. But instead, the cog's teeth are worn on the rear. The engineers can draw only one conclusion.
4: This machine is not moving by its own motive force. There's something else at play here, the hidden source of power.
1: The committee is convinced Red Heifer's invention is a scam. And with the exhibit raking in hundreds of dollars from innocent citizens, they know they must put an end to the con. But without a closer inspection, they are still unsure how the device is secretly powered.
4: What is really pushing this machine around?
1: For help, the men turn to a local inventor named Isaiah Lukens. Together, they hatch an elaborate plan. Lukens will construct his own machine that appears to operate without a power source in order to prove that it can be done. Then, the conspirators will unveil the false device at a public gathering and decry Red Heifer as a scammer. Lukens creates this phony perpetual motion machine, now exhibited at the Franklin Institute, The model is almost a mirror image of red heifers, except for one small detail. Lukens stowed a tiny engine beneath the baseboard that's connected to a seemingly innocuous knob on one of the device's pillars.
4: Hidden inside was a winder, so someone could slightly rotate that and get the machine to continue.
1: In the summer, Lukens and his co-conspirators showcased their perpetual motion machine at a public gathering. And invite Redheffer to attend. As the apparatus begins spinning, it's clear that Redheffer is buying into their ruse.
4: Redheffer was shocked seeing this machine work without motive power.
1: Then Lukens makes an announcement that stuns the crowd. He declares his model a hoax and calls out Redheffer's machine as the same.
4: Redheffer knows that he's been found out.
1: But before he can field questions, the con man flees, taking the secret of his machine's true power source with him. With news of his ruse slow to travel, Red Heifer takes his exhibition 90 miles north to New York. And soon, he unveils it to an unsuspecting public.
4: It's big news. People are still lining up to see it.
1: One day, a scientist views the device and notices something peculiar in the gears.
4: There's a little bit of a jiggle and not quite a steady gait to it. Those clues led him to believe that the machine was wound by a crank.
1: Curious, he goes behind the machine to investigate and notices a string leading to a concealed room. There, he discovers the shocking true origin of the machine's power.
4: This little old man is sitting, turning a crank, eating just a crust of bread.
1: Finally, Red Heifer's scheme is exposed he's been employing an elderly man to operate his machine for meager food and wages. Thoroughly discredited, Red Heifer flees the city and dies years later in obscurity. And today, Lukan's fake perpetual motion machine remains at the Franklin Institute, a reminder of the lengths that a handful of honorable scientists went to expose one of Philadelphia's greatest impostors. Arlington, Virginia. Located across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., this city is home to more than 23 agencies of the federal government, including the Drug Enforcement Administration. The dramatic history of this organization is chronicled here at the DEA Museum. On display are artifacts from some of the DEA's most dangerous investigations, including a door from a Los Angeles crack house, a homemade booby trap from a marijuana farm, and a diamond-encrusted handgun used against an agent in the field. But some of the most nefarious objects here, at first glance, look like nothing
5: more than harmless candy. They're approximately 8 to 10 millimeters in diameter. They're generally round or triangular in shape, range in color from red, yellow, green.
1: According to DEA special agent Joseph Moses,
5: These vibrant pills were at the heart of a treacherous scheme. Tablets like these thrust conservative individuals into a world of intrigue, betrayal, and deception. How did these drugs upend the lives of a group of pious young
1: people? 1995, New York City. Israeli-born Sean Arez is an ambitious entrepreneur who co-owns three clothing outlets in Manhattan.
5: For Arez, it was all about the money. He tried his hand at various businesses in Israel, Canada, and the United States. But over time, the cash-obsessed retailer grows unsatisfied with his profits.
1: So in 1998, he decides to dump the apparel trade for an enterprise where demand is always high and profits are practically guaranteed—illegal drugs. His plan is to traffic ecstasy a synthetic substance quickly emerging as one of the most widely used narcotics in America. And to get a leg up on other local dealers,
5: the greedy businessman resolves to base his operation abroad in Amsterdam. In the 1990s, the Netherlands was ground zero for ecstasy production. The price per tablet was much lower than in the United States, and therefore the profits to be made in ecstasy smuggling was much higher. But when he arrives there, he encounters a problem.
1: How will he transport the pills into the United States? Arez knows other traffickers smuggle their product through the mail or in maritime shipments, but those methods can be slow and unreliable. So he settles on a more efficient strategy human couriers. It's a dangerous endeavor, replete with the risk of a lengthy prison term.
5: So he recruits from a group that he believes can flirt its way out of trouble. Arez started by using females to be the couriers, specifically exotic dancers. Soon, a team of women begin carrying thousands
1: of pills per trip through customs. But after a few months, international narcotics units grow suspicious of the flashy strippers. And the girls get a new set of bracelets. Furious at the loss of business, Arez vows to find a more unexpected group of couriers... And one day, he's struck by a wild notion. What if he employed a
5: group widely regarded as pious and morally forthright? Hasidic Jews. He felt that the way they dressed, their demeanor, wouldn't arouse the suspicion of customs officials. It's a scheme so far-fetched, it
1: just might make him a millionaire. To sell his scheme, Arez hires an unscrupulous friend in New York's Hasidic community named Shimon Levita. Then, the recruiter approaches potential participants, utilizing
5: a nefarious deception. He offered to pay for a round-trip, all-expenses tour of Europe, provided they did one thing for him. He said that he had an associate in Paris that had a quantity of diamonds that he needed smuggled to the United States. Though diamond smuggling is illegal, Levita claims the mission is a noble one. He plays upon their sense of duty, their sense of patriotism, by explaining that the diamonds are going to be used to fund a counter-terror operation in Israel. And the deceit works. More than a dozen loyal Hasidic Jews, eager to help
1: their homeland, take the deal. When the unsuspecting couriers begin to carry the product through customs, they emerge undetected. Arez is thrilled. His business skyrockets. And before long, the racketeer is raking in millions. It seems nothing could possibly go wrong. April 14th, 1999, a young married Jewish couple, acting as Areza's couriers, arrive at Charles de Gaulle airport
5: and check their bags. But as they're going through security, a policeman pulls them out of line. The officer produces a set of handcuffs, and they're taken into custody. The bewildered newlyweds are taken to a back room where their suitcases
1: are laid out before them. Inside are 78,000 ecstasy
5: tablets, worth more than $2 million. The couple are stunned. Something that was initially seemed honorable to them, it turned out much worse than they could have ever imagined.
1: Over the next few weeks, more than a dozen unwitting Hasidic couriers are nabbed. Then, on June 21st, Arez himself is arrested. The kingpin is dumbfounded. How did his ingenious operation come crashing down? It seems Arez had long been a target of DEA interest. For months, investigators tried to figure out how the drug lord smuggled his product into the States. And finally, through wiretaps and confidential informants, they discovered his heinous ruse. In the end, 18 members of the operation are convicted, and numerous Hasidic couriers are given reduced prison sentences for their cooperation in the case against Derez. At the time, it was the largest ecstasy takedown in New York history. Today, at the DEA Museum in Arlington, Virginia, these candy-colored pills serve as a harsh reminder of the dangers posed by illegal drugs and those who peddle them. From a funeral fanatic, to a record-breaking flight, an unholy enterprise, to a cowboy crusader. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to less than similar brands.